0: I said this last time I was here, but I'll say it again. That was about four years ago, I think, the last time I was able to visit here. And uh, this church, City Reform Church, just has has an out-of-proportion place of affection in our family's hearts. We were only here for about six months, but God just used that time in such a powerful way as an oasis of blessing. And I just want you to know, we think of you often. We pray for your ongoing health. Here and we carry you in our hearts. So, it is so very good to be back. Thanks for having us and welcoming us. One other thing I want to say by way of introduction, before I begin the sermon. Uh, I want to let you know that I'm going to be preaching this morning on how we, as Christians, can use our words in a Christ-honoring way. And I want to make sure that you know that Pastor Chris did not ask me to preach on this topic. Chris has not said anything negative about this church to me at all in fact anytime he talks about you all he's just uh, speaks of the blessing it is to be a pastor here so but at my own church Ebenezer back in Leduc Alberta we have recently walked through two very difficult and very controversial issues. I, I just used the past tense walked, that's not quite quite right. We are walking through two controversial issues. And along the way, I think that we've lost a little kindness in the way that we use our words towards one another. And I just kind of figured if that was true of the people at my church who are dear, sweet, wonderful people, but if that's true of them, then maybe it's true here. And anyways, even if it's not, it's always good to take an opportunity to self-audit and to ask ourselves if we are using our words in the way that this passage in Ephesians commands us to do. And so that's what we'll do this morning. I'll pray first and then I'll read the passage. Holy Father, here we come now, your people, your family, seated at your table, you are our host, we are your guests, and your holy word is our food, and so I pray that we would eat well, that you would feed us, nourish us, sustain us, by the riches in your word, that we would read it, understand it, believe it, and apply it to our church, and to our lives, to our families, in our communities. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Alright, I'm reading from the book of Ephesians chapter 4, and I'll start in verse 25. Ephesians 4, starting in verse 25. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption, that all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved Children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave Himself up for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. 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 Well, in 1904 05, a revival swept through the country of Wales. Just swept through it. It touched just about every single church, touched about every single family in the whole country. It was unbelievable. Hundreds of thousands of people in that small country were impacted by the simple power of the gospel of grace. And Welsh people love to sing anyways. They love any reason to sing. And that gave them cause for singing and so, There were just, there was Christ-exalting music echoing throughout that country in the year 1904-1905. The most famous, the most lasting hymn that came out of that revival was written by a man named William Rees. Translated into English, it's called, Here is Love. I, I feel like that song here, I don't know, we sing it at our church all the time, Here is Love. Every verse of that song is great. But the second verse of that song is perfect. So I'm going to read a translation for you that kind of more literally translates the Welsh that it was written in into English. This is not exactly the words that we sing, but it's the same idea. But here's what it says. On Calvary tore the fountains of the great deep. Broken were all the floodgates of the heavens, which were secure until then. Grace and love like a deluge pouring down together, and pure justice with peace kissing a guilty world. So that's a poetic image, and what he's describing is that on Calvary, as the Son of God died for our sins, the floodgates of heaven just could not contain it and broke open, and this wave, this deluge of grace and love and peace and justice just poured out. On to humanity, and that was God kissing a guilty world. Now there are a lot of radical, life-changing implications to, to being on the receiving end of the kiss of God. There are probably thousands of sermons that could be preached on the implications of what it means to receive a kiss from God. This morning I'm preaching on just one aspect of that, how receiving the kiss of God should impact our words how we speak. So, go back to Wales again for one minute. One of my favorite stories that came out of that revival is this. There was a particular mining town that was known for being a very hard place, a very dark place. And uh, when the revival hit town, a lot of the miners came to faith in Christ. And what they found is that the mules that they used in the mines would no longer respond to them after they came to faith in Christ. The problem was that the mules were only used to responding to cursing and shouting and profanity. And so they they didn't know how to respond when the men cleaned up their language and started speaking gently to them. They had never heard that before. They had to retrain all the mules to respond to kind words. I, I love that story because it's a very practical example of how the kiss of God impacts our words. When our hearts are changed by the power of the gospel, our words change too. There is a Christian way to speak. Okay, And I'm not talking about that there's like a list of certain words uh, that w- w- we do use and there's a list of other words that we don't use. Uh, I'm not talking about that. On that front, I was, uh, I was shocked when we moved to Canada to discover that a certain word that I always categorized as bad word, don't say it, was perfectly common in the new place where we were. I even heard that word used from the pulpit there. (laughs) I can't tell you what that word is because this is an American pulpit. (laughs) You have to come visit me in Canada if you want to hear me say that word. My point is this passage is not about the words that we use but it's about the way that we use our words, right? You see the difference there? It's not about the words we use but it's about the way That we're using our words and I know it sounds kind of trivial and kind of cliche to say this but I'm going to say it anyways your words are the most powerful thing that you possess when God created the world he endowed words with an enormous amount of potential power right he himself created the universe through his words Jesus his son is referred to as the word Jesus cured diseases, cast out demons from distance with words. He taught God's truth with words. He forgave people's sin with His words. Your sins are forgiven. Go and sin no more. Words. Now, there's power behind those words, but His medium was words. Words have so much power, and that's a knife that cuts both ways. Words have the power to do good, and words have the power to do incredible harm. Think of the words whispered by the serpent, temptations, lies. Think of the lies that the scribes and Pharisees told about Jesus. Think of the mocking insults that people hurled at Jesus as he died on the cross. Or if you want to make it more personal, just think of the last time someone used their words in a way that cut you personally. In the same way that technology has the amazing potential for both good and bad, right? Advances in medicine, advances in communication, those things keep us healthy, they keep us connected with loved ones, and yet we also have greater potential to harm each other than ever before because of technology. Even more so our words have that potential for good or for evil. Words can be used to bless and to build up, or to curse and to tear down. So how is this passage advocating that we are to use our words? I see three things, and so those are going to be the three points of the sermon this morning. I see this passage, I mean, there's a lot in this passage. We're certainly not going to cover everything, but I see three ways for us to use our words. We need to use our words truthfully. We need to use our words peacefully, and we need to use our words constructively. Those are our three points this morning. So it's in verse 25 that Paul tells us, put off falsehood and speak truthfully. And the reason, he gives a reason for why falsehood is so bad and speaking the truth is so good, and the reason he gives is because he says that we're all members of of one body. That's a metaphor that Paul uses throughout the letter. The church is one body. It's a body. One body, many members, all functioning together as one unity. Different parts, different roles, one thing, one unity. So think of that metaphor as it pertains to the importance of speaking truth. What happens when one part of the body can't trust what the other parts of the body are saying to it? Like, as an example, that's what happens when a body gets leprosy, Right? The leper loses the sense of feelings in their limbs, so the fingers touch the boiling water, but those fingers tell a lie to the brain and say, that's not hot, that's perfectly fine. And as a result, the body ends up tearing itself down because the different members of the body can't trust each other anymore. The brain doesn't know if the fingers are lying to it or not. And that's what Paul says happens in the church when we're not being truthful with one another. We end up being not able to trust one another, another, and then we end up self-destructing. We tear ourselves down when deceptive words are spoken. Now that would, of course, include outright lies, obviously, but it also includes small deceptions that can creep into our relationships. And this passage is saying, don't do that. It's bad for our own souls, it's bad for the body, it's bad for the church, if we practice even even tiny deceptions with one another. So whenever I do premarital counseling with a couple, I always tell them, listen, there's one lie that is the most common lie in a marriage. And the lie is this, I'm fine. (laughs) When someone asks, how are you doing? To respond to that question by saying, I'm fine. When you're not fine? That's a lie! That is dishonest. Now, I do understand that there's a question of timing and context, and sometimes when someone says, how's it going, it's really more of a greeting than asking the person to pour out their soul. I get that. You don't, you don't have to spout off your deepest struggles to everyone who asks, how you doing? But still, if it's really true that the church is a family, if it's really true that we are one body, then we have to commit to be honest with one another in all things. And that includes being honest with one another about how we're doing. Right? If we're not doing well, if we're needing care, if we're needing support, if we're needing someone just to listen, we should say that. That's the truth. And we should be willing to say that. Life is hard. right? Every life comes with a certain amount of emotional strength and we should be checking in on one another and making sure everyone's doing okay and being honest with one another as to whether or not we are doing okay. All right, so that's the first guideline for how we use our words, total truth. Total truth, no outright lies, no little deceptions, no shading the truth, just truth. Okay, but that would be a little dangerous if that was our only guideline, right? You get a room full of people who have strong opinions, and are all committed to speaking their mind all the time, you're going to have some problems. That's where the next two guidelines come in. We need to use the power of our words, not only truthfully, but also use the power of our words peacefully. Verses 26 and 27, they say, In your anger do not sin, do not let the sun go down while you are still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. Notice that it doesn't say never get angry. The fact is, we're going to get angry. We are. Sometimes we will get angry for good reasons. In that case, our anger will be what the Bible calls righteous anger. And that will be because we are angry at the same things that God is angry at. That's righteous anger, right? If you're angry about injustice, if you're angry about oppression, if you're angry about unkindness, those are the things that should make us angry because those are the things that make God angry, and anger like that is a righteous response to sin. Other times our anger will not be righteous. Those times our anger will be selfish. We will be angry because somebody offended us. We will be angry because somebody inconvenienced us. We will be angry because somebody ignored us. Or we will just be angry because we're having a bad day and we're just angry. But in either case, Whether your anger is justified or not, do not sin in your anger. That's what this says. You're gonna get angry. Sometimes it'll be for good reasons. Sometimes it'll be for bad reasons. But when you get angry, do not sin in your anger. And what is by far the most common way that we sin in our anger? With our words, yeah? You think you're being treated unfairly. So you raise your voice and you shout so that you will be heard. Your kids break the rules that you have so carefully and repeatedly explained to them. So you lose it. and You get angry. You show them who's in charge. Someone insults you or makes you angry somehow. And so you dash off a harsh email and you put them in their place. And maybe that email contains things that you would never say to their face, but you'll say it in an email and send it off. Hit send before you can delete it. Or maybe someone makes a decision that you don't like, and so you subtly tear them down when you're talking about them. They're not even in the room. But you're speaking about them, and you might not be speaking with a raised voice, but you're speaking in anger, and you're tearing them down. And in each of those cases, the person who got angry might defend their actions and say, yeah, but what I said is true. All right, maybe. Maybe what you said is true, but did you say it in a way that was promoting peace? Or did you sin in your anger? So let's ask ourselves this morning, are we in the habit of speaking words or typing words in anger? to co-workers, to family members, to members of this church. And then, after you've asked yourself that question, which can feel a little uncomfortable if we're really being honest with ourselves, take the next step, and this takes even more bravery, ask someone else who knows you, who hears you speak, who reads your emails. Ask if they think that you sometimes sin in anger with your words. Ask someone else, how do my words sound to you? That can be uncomfortable to hear someone else's perspective on your words, because we don't always know what our words sound like. Right? I I have this experience more than I would like, but my sermons that I preach at, um, at 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 Ebenezer, they're recorded, they're posted online, and sometimes I have this awkward experience of like, walking into a room, I'll walk into the kitchen at our home, or I'll walk into the church office, and for whatever reason, someone's playing one of my sermons, and so I am greeted with the sound of my own voice preaching. And my first thought is always, who is that? What's he going on about? And why is he so excited? (laughs) And And then I have this moment of recognition, and I realize, oh, that's me. That's what I sound like. I don't know how people put up with it. And I feel very embarrassed, and I tell the person, please shut that off until I leave the room. (laughs) That's what it's like for some people and their words. Right? They don't know what they sound like. They sound a certain way in their own head, just like I sound to myself right now, but they sound differently to people who are listening. They don't realize that they're speaking in anger. They don't realize that they're emailing in anger. And they don't realize that they're doing relational damage to the people around them. So ask someone who knows you, if this command about not sinning in your anger, if it applies to you. And if you get a truthful answer, which by the way, we've already covered in point one, you're supposed to get a truthful answer here. You might be surprised. You might be surprised. Your words are more powerful than you think. The effect that they're having on the people around you will last longer than you think. So don't speak those words in anger. Speak the truth, always, but speak it peacefully, always. And if you can call to mind a time, even just now, in this moment, If God's bringing to your mind or to your heart a time when you have sinned in anger with your words against someone here in this church, and if you haven't circled back and made that right, then do it. Our passage this morning says that our unity as a church body depends on that. Whether that's with your children or with another one of your brothers or your sisters here in this congregation, if you don't make it right, this passage says, if you don't go back and, look, we all sin, right? That's part of it. That's part of this journey. But if you don't go back and make it right, then you are giving the devil a foothold. You don't want to give the devil a foothold in your church. You want smooth walls in your church. You want no footholds for the devil to get up on. Our, Our youngest daughter, Sylvia, has just gotten into rock climbing. And you know those those fake rock walls that have like the little things all over them and then you climb up. That's what I'm picturing, right? And every time we sin against one another and don't make it right, don't go back and fix it, we're just putting up one of those footholds that the devil can step on and grab on and climb his way up. We don't want those in our church. Let's keep the walls smooth. We don't keep the walls smooth by never sinning, because we're not going to do that. But what we do is when we sin, we go back, we confess, repent, And we make it right. Alright, so use the power of words truthfully. Use the power of words peacefully. Final point, use the power of your words constructively. Verse 29 says this, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. That's our standard. That's our standard. Only ever let words out of your mouth, only ever let words out of your keyboard that will build others up and that will be a means of grace to them. I want you to think about that for a minute. God is willing, according to this passage, this is not me, according to this passage, God is willing to use your words, your words, as a means of grace to build up the people to whom you are speaking. Your words can be used by God as a means of grace. So how does that work? It's actually quite simple. It's not complicated. You don't have to go around spouting like profound, deep, wise things all the time. You don't have to be a spiritual Yoda. Anyone can do this. Everyone should do this. It simply involves taking the time to speak a word of encouragement to someone who needs to hear it. Right? Which means you have to be paying attention to notice that someone needs to hear it, and then speak a word of encouragement. It means that you have to speak a word of comfort to someone who's hurting. Which means you have to be paying attention and see who's hurting. And then you have to be willing to speak comfort into that situation. It means maybe just a short, handwritten note tucked into someone's mailbox. You know how meaningful that is? To just give someone a note of encouragement, stick it in their mailbox? It means taking out the time to point out evidences of grace in someone else's life. Hey, I just wanna tell you, I see God at work in your life in this way, and it's beautiful. Say that to someone. God is at work here, right? In all kinds of ways. Let's take the time to point it out. Or it means reminding someone of God's promises at a moment when they need to hear it. You get the idea. You know people who are really gifted at this? I bet you do. Maybe you're even thinking of someone. People who are just so good at using their words as a means of grace. We just lost someone like this back at my church uh, back home. Her name was Margaret. She was constantly building others up. She was constantly sending notes of encouragement, sending texts to people. And at her memorial service, everyone mentioned that. Everyone, it was was striking. The, the, The sanctuary was full, and when people shared, everyone had something to say about the way this woman's words were a means of blessing on them. And so when I spoke, I likened her to Dorcas, that's, that's, possibly the most unfortunate Biblical name, ever. <laughs> I definitely saw teenagers chuckling when I said it. it. The story about Dorcas is from Acts chapter 9. I don't have time to read that passage, but maybe some of you remember this, the scene. Dorcas has died. And in the passage, she is described, we don't know much about her, but she is described as being full of good works and acts of charity. That's kind of the summary of her life. Beautiful, right? She was full of good works and acts of charity. That's just what she was like. And so we're told that the whole town is mourning and that the Apostle Peter comes and he comes to the room where the body is, where Dorcas is. And and we read this, it says this, all the widows stood beside him weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. So. My friend Margaret was like that, but instead of the garments and the tunics, she 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 gave out kind words, and we all carried those around with us. We were blessed by those words, and we wore them like a garment. She had put those words together and given them to us, and there we are. Where we were, a room full of people who had been clothed with the kindness of the words of this dear woman. That is a beautiful legacy. She was like a mason, just just using her words as bricks to build people up. That's how God can use our words as a means of grace. Every time you speak to someone, your words have the potential either to build them up, right? To add a brick, to be a means of grace, to continue to help to build the house that God is forming them into, or your words can tear them down. You can pull bricks away from them and make them feel diminished the question this morning is how are you and how am I going to choose to use our words now listen all of that all of that is easy to do it's easy to do when the other person is cooperating right I have no problem speaking peaceably peacefully to my kids when they're obeying right I'm awesome I'm an awesome dad when my kids are obeying I have no problem sending nice emails to people who send me nice emails. It's just lovely, we just love each other. I get nice emails, I send back nice emails, that's how the world should work. I I, I can be a very pleasant customer when I'm getting good customer service, but what are my words gonna look like when my kids are blatantly disobeying and doing the very things that I did when I was a kid? What are my emails going to sound like? What are they going to read like? When I'm responding to a message that was just plain nasty and hurtful. And What, does it sound, this, this, what sort of voice am I going to use when, when the, the customer service is uh, less than exemplary? I, I, I'm smiling because if you only knew the week I had and the conversations I had with Air Canada. It, uh, <laughs> it's, anyways. I won't go there. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll go here. I'll end with one, just one real-life example, not of me. An example from real life that can help us respond with grace and forgiveness instead of retaliating with our words when people <coughs> sin against us. Right? Don't use your words like a weapon. The story is from Gladys Staines. Uh, she and her husband and her three children were missionaries in India. Uh, it's it's quite possible that you heard the story when it happened. It was on the news a lot. It was January 23, 1999. Her husband Graham and her two sons, they were aged 8 and 10, they were asleep in a vehicle in a remote village. Uh, that night a group of militants came and doused their car with gasoline. They lit it on fire and then they stood around the car and prevented the boys and the dad from getting out, and all of them burned alive inside. When Gladys heard the news, she immediately turned to her, did I knock this? No, I'm good? Okay. When Gladys heard the news, she immediately turned to her doctor, daughter, and she said to her daughter, We'll forgive them, won't we? And the daughter said, yes, mommy, we will. And they did. They forgave the men who burned their dad and husband and and, and brothers to death. And sometime later, someone approached Gladys' daughter, and the person was genuinely confused, not upset, but confused, and the person said, I just don't understand how you could possibly have forgiven those people. And the daughter was confused too and went home and spoke to her mom and she was genuinely confused and she said, Mom, I can't understand how they can't understand why we've forgiven those men. It doesn't make sense to me. You see, there was a culture of grace in Gladys and Graham Stane's household that so deeply infected their children that it was inconceivable to their daughter that you want to forgive someone who had sinned against you. That, to me, is an amazing testimony of the power of grace. And so where does that power come from? I'll let Gladys explain it in her own words. This is from an article that she wrote after the murder of her husband and her two sons. She wrote this. Forgiveness brings healing. Forgiveness allows the other person a chance to start life afresh. And if I have something against you, and I forgive you, then the bitterness leaves me. Forgiveness liberates both the forgiver and the forgiven. How was I able to forgive? The truth is this. I myself am a sinner. I needed Jesus Christ to forgive me. Because I have Jesus Christ in my life, it is possible for me to forgive others. Now that response is the embodiment of the words we heard in verse 32. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as in Christ God has forgiven you. That is a woman who has been kissed by the grace of God. And because of that, she doesn't retaliate when she's been wronged, she forgives. And she uses her words as a means of grace to build others up and not tear them down. And by God's grace, she has now passed that legacy on to her daughter. That is how you and I should be using our words truthfully, peacefully, and constructively. Would you pray with me? Holy Father, you have entrusted us with so much power in giving us the gift of language, of articulation, of words. It's such a powerful thing that we have to be able to communicate, uh, to communicate with you, uh, and to communicate with one another. But we're not perfect people, God. We're fallen people, we're selfish people, we're sinful people, and so, there are times when we use that gift for harm and for, instead of for good. And so I pray and ask for your forgiveness for those times, I ask for healing, for wounds that have been caused through words. And I just, I just simply pray your protection upon this wonderful congregation. I, I see you at work here, I know you're at work here, and it is beautiful. So I pray that you would preserve and protect your people, that you would keep the walls smooth here, and that the devil would never get a foothold. In Christ's name, amen.